Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. When it's known that lawbreakers will be shown grace, won't there be many, if not all, who take advantage of that grace? Let me illustrate this with a, a couple of examples. Think about it. If you, if you post a speed limit sign that says 65 miles an hour, but in posting that speed limit sign, you, you generally tend to show grace to people who break that speed limit by up to about 10 miles an hour. Right? That's a pretty common practice, right? What's going to happen? What's going to happen if you, if you do that, if you show that up to 10 miles an hour grace in a 65 mile an hour zone? Well, most people, I think, will logically take that 10 mile an hour grace zone as permission right, to, to go 75 miles an hour. Isn't that right? Don't we kind of just calculate in our mind, I see 65, but they don't really mean it, right? <laughs> they give me grace up to 75, so I'm going to take the 75. It's human nature, right? If there's, a, if there's a grace zone, we take advantage of it. Another example, the city of Seattle just recently conducted an interesting social experiment, if you're paying attention. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but there was a, a, a section of the city, a six-block section of the city that they called, I believe they called it CHAZ, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And they ran out the official law enforcers in that area, the police, and it was, it was a bit of a, a social experiment. What will happen if we remove the official law enforcers from this six-block zone of our city? And I'm not trying to make a political statement this morning. I'm just noticing the, the simple fact of, of what happened when, when those law enforcers were kicked out. Well, over the course of that time, that zone eventually devolved into violence, right? Because some took the opportunity afforded by there not being any law enforcers in that zone, and they, they committed acts of violence. That's what happened. When the threat of law enforcement is removed many took the opportunity to run amok. Well, this is the tendency uh, that exists in human nature. And it's, it's this tendency that causes people to raise an objection to the gospel of grace. Let me remind you for a minute here of what Paul said. We talked about this last week in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. He said this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, Paul, wait a minute. You're saying here, so let me back up a little bit. Paul is, it has been explaining the whole of human history in, in Romans chapter 5. If you're just joining us, you're jumping into the middle of the book here. Paul has been explaining the whole of human history through two figureheads, right? Adam, the first man, 
and Christ, who is sometimes referred to as the second Adam, right? And we, all of us, fall in, into one of two categories. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And Paul sums up all of human history with that, but then it, it invariably brings up the question, well, what about the law? What about the, the old covenant Ten Commandments that, that God gave to Moses? What about that law? Where does that work into human history, to salvation history? And Paul describes it here in Romans chapter 5 as something that, that came in sort of through a side door late in time for the purpose not of successfully curbing our sin, but really to increase our sin, to increase the trespass, to sort of highlight the fact that we are sinners in need of salvation. That, that is what the function of the law ended up doing. And so Paul, in, in noticing this about the law, that the law really just created more trespass, it created increased sin, he doesn't despair in this fact. He rather says that um, grace, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But Paul, don't you know if you remove the penalty for wrongdoing, then what power is going to remain to restrain evil? Right? If you tell people that there's grace, abounding grace to cover all their sins, then what's going to keep them from abusing that and, and running headlong into sin? Well, that's exactly the objection that Paul sort of imagines here that someone raises as he's writing his letter. If you look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this question, I suppose, could be raised by one of two sorts of people. One, it, it could be raised by someone who doesn't believe in God, right? And they're, they're hearing about the gospel and they're hearing about this declaration of grace to cover all my sins. And they come to the conclusion, wow, that sounds really convenient, right? I can get something to cover all of my sins and yet still continue to live in my sin. Right? So that's one person that maybe might raise this concern. They might view the gospel as sort of a get-out-of-hell-free card. But I really don't think that's who Paul is envisioning raising this question here. I, I think really Paul is envisioning uh, this question being really raised more like an objection or really almost like an accusation from a concerned Christian or uh, probably actually a concerned Jewish Christian who just heard Paul denigrate, seemingly denigrate the, the Mosaic law. And this religiously devout objector, uh, I think, obviously is thinking what you and I might also think, I don't know, that an overemphasis on God's grace might lead to a lack of holiness. Paul, don't you know that if you teach your disciples that no matter how much their sins increase, God's grace abounds all the more, that they will abuse it? Paul, don't you, do you really think that announcing free grace is a good idea? That's kind of the way this question is being used. By the way, I, I really firmly believe that if you are preaching the true gospel of salvation by faith alone, 
you are you are almost always going to receive this kind of objection. In fact, if you're not receiving this kind of an objection to what you're preaching, then I would question whether or not you're preaching the same gospel that Paul is preaching and preaching the same gospel that Jesus was preaching. It, anyone who preached the true gospel throughout history had this question hurled at them. Don't you know that in preaching this, people might abuse it? If you remove the penalty for wrongdoing, then what power rema- remains to res- restrain evil? Well, Paul answers in the following way, and I'm really going to kind of depart here this morning from what I normally do. I normally take you sort of chronologically through the text, beginning with the first verse and then the second verse, third verse. I'm opting almost this morning to, to go through this, this passage of Scripture in reverse, Okay, so hopefully that doesn't confuse you too much. But I'm, what, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying to, I want to present to you Paul's argument more logically than chronologically. Okay, I, I want to present sort of the, the argument as it unfolds as a matter of logic. So here's my three points this morning, and I'm going to just leave them up here the whole time I'm preaching so you can kind of consider this. One, uh, sin is a power. It is a power. Secondly, Christ overcame that power. And thirdly, in him, you have two. Okay, pretty simple. Right? I tried to boil it down to just its simplest uh, bare bones outline I could here. So we're going to take these just one at a time here. First, sin is a power. If I could express to you the fear behind verse 1 of chapter 6, it, it would be this. Paul I hear you saying that grace removes the penalty of sin, right? There's abounding grace to cover the penalty of sin. Paul's been spending four or five chapters now talking about how ungodly people can ever hope to stand before a righteous and holy God justified and and declared righteous, right? How, How is it that someone who is verifiably ungodly like you and I can ever hope to stand before a holy God declared righteous, right? Paul has been building this case saying that we are justified by faith and faith alone and that there is grace abounding to cover our sins. So if I were to, as I said, express the fear behind this question, verse one, it would be this fear that, Paul, I hear you saying that grace removes the penalty of sin, but, but sin is so powerful won't the removal of the penalty only empower sin all the more? Well, Paul doesn't respond to this fear of the power of sin by denying that sin is powerful. He doesn't respond that way. You see, Paul acknowledges that sin is powerful. He acknowledges that sin is more than just the the actions that we do that displease God. Sin is that. But sin is more than that. Paul portrays sin here as something that actually has a power to reign over us through death. Right? And even if if we were to, in our own strength, try to stop sinning, we wouldn't be able to do it. Even if we were to try to stop dying, we wouldn't be able to do it. Right? It has a power over us. Paul's been talking about it like this all throughout the book of Romans. We, we saw this back in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 where Paul said that 
Um, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We are under it. It's a power and we are under it. And then in Romans chapter 5, the last chapter we were in here, in, in verse 21, he says that sin reigned in death. Sin reigned in death, like a king reigns over its people. Death, sin and death reigned over us in that way. And here, throughout this passage here in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, Paul describes sin as something that needs to be rendered powerless in verse 6 so that it will not reign over us in verse 12 or be our master in verse 14. He describes it almost like a slave master over its slave. And this lines up with what Jesus taught in John 8, 34, where, when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, sin is not just something we do. It's a power that reigns over us through death. Uh, it enslaves us through, its, through our sinful desires, and it reigns over us ultimately through death itself. Sin is so powerful over us, in fact, that I think we intuitively know that it's not enough simply to have the penalty of sin removed. We also need the power of sin to be broken. Or else we will just keep running on headlong into sin time and time again. If, if I could state that another way, I would say we need to be not only justified, we need to not only be declared righteous, to have the payment covered, we also need to be sanctified, set apart, and made holy in him. So, to return to our opening illustrations, we don't just need to be set free from the punishment that we deserve for breaking the speed limit, right? We need, we need some kind of a power to free us from the desire to even break the speed limit to begin with, right? We don't just need freedom from the enforcement of the law. We need something to change us on the inside to break the stranglehold of sin's power that drives us to want to break the law in the first place. Well, the good news is that Christ not only overcame the penalty of our sins so that we could be justified, Christ at the same time overcame the powerful reign of sin so that we might be sanctified. That brings me to my second point here, that Christ overcame that power, that power of sin. Look at verses 9 and 10 here in our passage. Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What does it mean here in verse 10 that the death he died, meaning Christ died, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. What does that mean? Well, it means that he lived in his life as if he was dead to sin. And when he finally died, he once for all died to its power. Let me, let me explain that a little bit. Think about how amazing it is that God's son took on human flesh and came down and lived among us. Right? God 
God's son, Jesus, existed before he came as a little baby into this world and lived and, and joined his, uh, his deity with humanity in the incarnation. He lived forever in heaven with God eternally and there sin had no opportunity to have any power over him. Death had no opportunity to have any power over him. But Jesus, in obedience to the Father and in willingness, came into the world as a man and subjected himself to the power of sin and even the, the power of death. He, gave, he allowed the power of sin to have the opportunity, I should say, to exercise its power over him. The power of sin that so enslaves us tried its best to overcome Christ. But in his life, Jesus lived a life of perfect, sinless holiness. He lived his life in perfect sanctification to his heavenly Father. Jesus lived his life considering himself dead to sin. Think about it. He didn't succumb to sin and the power of sin as a little boy growing up in Egypt and then Nazareth. He didn't succumb to sin as a, a carpenter in, in his young adult years as a, as a carpenter in and around Nazareth in relative obscurity. He didn't succumb to sin's power as he fasted and prayed in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan himself came and tempted Jesus. Right? He didn't succumb to sin's power in the intense pressures of his earthly ministry. He didn't succumb to sin's power in the Garden of Gethsemane as he desired the cup of suffering to pass from him. Right? Rather, he submitted to the will of the Father and, and willingly went to the cross. And in all of that, he didn't sin. He did not succumb to sin's power as the Father forsook him, allowing him to be crucified so that so that God the Father might pour out his wrath against sin on Jesus. Jesus didn't sin even as he was dying unjustly for the sins of all of us. In all of this, Jesus lived a life of death to sin. He lived his life as if he was dead to sin. Right? And not only that, but in his death then, he finally died to sin's opportunity to ever have power over him again. If, if Romans 6.10 were written about you and me, we would probably say something like this. The death Stan died, he died because of sin. Right? But when we're talking about Jesus, we say this. No, the death he died, he died to sin. Right? Sin no longer has the opportunity even to exercise power over him. In other words, sin threw the worst it had at him, yet Jesus in his life, and especially in his death, consistently died to sin's power. It held no sway over him. Over him. Never again will sin even have the opportunity to exercise power over him. For after he defeated the penalty of sin on the cross, he also, at the same time, overcame the power of sin through his resurrection. Paul says this, in verse 10, he says, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. A 
I love how, in, if you back up a, a verse here in verse 9, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. There will never be another opportunity for sin and death to gain an upper hand. He's defeated them. So sin is a power, right? And Christ alone has overcome that power. And thirdly here, it is only in unity with him that you can also have victory over sin and death. In fact, Paul says more than that. He says that in him, you have had victory over the power of sin. Baptism teaches us this. If you look at verses three through five of our passage here, Paul says this. Look, look, read along with me in your Bibles here, beginning in verse three. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul clearly thinks that the Roman Christians should have already known this. He says in verse 3, do you not know this, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I mean, after all, our unity with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is graphically and tangibly portrayed in that act of baptism. And notice here for a moment that Paul doesn't seem to have a category in his mind for an unbaptized Christian. It, it's sort of just assumed here that those who believe have also taken the first steps of obedience and been baptized. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you to consider taking that step of obedience to the Lord and be, be baptized. Take, take care of it. What are you waiting for, right? The, the scriptures here indicate, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Baptism doesn't, isn't some kind of a sacrament or something that magically uh, does something in our lives, but it is a, a step of obedience that we take that powerfully and visibly declares something to the whole world. It, it declares it visibly to the whole world, something that has invisibly taken place in our hearts. And why put it off? The Lord commands us to do it, right? It, it's simple and, and it, it's prescribed and it's a step of obedience here. And Paul leans on this shared experience that we all have as Christians of having been baptized and he, he uses it to teach this reality of how we've been united with Christ. We've been united with Christ in such a way that his death is my death. His burial is my burial and subsequently his new life of resurrection is my new life. As you were immersed in the waters of baptism, so you were immersed in him in his death. And as you were further submerged beneath the waters, 
So you have been submerged in the grave with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, finally, as you emerge out of the waters, so too you emerge with him out of the grave into newness of life. That's what Paul is teaching here in this section. Just as we talked past couple weeks about how being born into this world, we are born united with Adam in such a way that Adam's sin is my sin and Adam's death is my death. So now, by faith and in unity with Christ, his death and resurrection are counted as my own. That's how deep the unity is. And this is what we declare from this very first act of obedience as Christians through baptism. Look at verse 5 here where Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I, I want you to notice that word there, united. This word united is, is a, bo- a botanical term. It literally means grown together. It, it pictures not just two things that have been attached to one another, but two things that have actually grown together like a branch is grafted into the vine. Jesus himself emphasized our, our unity with him in this way when he told his disciples in John fifteen five. he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In baptism, we are declaring that kind of growing together with Christ, that kind of union. And we're declaring, similar to what Paul says in Galatians 3.20, we're declaring, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Secondly, in in this next chunk of scripture here from verses 6 through 10, I want you to notice what Paul says here as he begins to remind these Roman Christians of things that we know, things that we believe. In fact, I went through with a pencil and kind of underlined the words, we know, we believe, we know. So I want you to notice that as I read this here, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for no one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm sorry, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And then verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christian, do you know that both the penalty and the power of sin have been broken through unity with Christ? Do you know that the power of sin has been broken in your life? Do you believe it? You say, well, it sure doesn't feel like it some days. 
Sin sure feels mighty powerful to me. But I'm not asking you if sin feels powerful in your life. I'm asking, do you know and believe that the power of sin over you has been broken through unity in Christ? Paul has asked a question here as he introduced this whole section of Scripture in in verse 1 of this section. He, He asked this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if the penalty of sin is removed through justification, what will be left to restrain the power of sin in my life? And the surprising thing about the way Paul answers this objection is that he answers it with the indicative, not, the in, not with an imperative. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know the difference between the, a, a verb that's in the indicative and a verb that's in the imperative? An indicative is, is just a plain statement of fact. You painted the fence. Right? That's an indicative. Whereas an imperative is an exhortation or a commandment. You paint the fence. And so when, when this question is brought up here about what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace that, that sin may abound? I'm sorry, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? You might expect Paul to respond with, a, with a, an imperative, with a command to say, you better not. You better put to death that sin in your body. But he doesn't do that. No, he, he falls back on an indicative statement, something, uh, just a simple statement of fact. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, by no, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, we have died. He doesn't say, you better die. He says, you've already done it. You have already died to the power of sin through unity with Christ. This is where Paul begins with answering this question. And so let me ask you a question, Christian. Is this how you would answer this? If someone came to you and began to speak about concerns about preaching grace to cover the penalty of sin because, man, sin is just still so powerful in my life, how would you answer that question? Would you immediately begin to command someone else, well, you, 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 better, you better be holy, you better put to death that sin in your life? Or would you fall back like Paul does into explaining just a statement of fact of of believer, remember who you are in Christ. Remember of your position in Christ. You have died to that sin, no matter what you feel. Paul, I I believe, is actually saying here that it is impossible for a true believer to go on living in sin. Why? Because we have already died to it. So let's think about how to apply this here this morning. The power to progressively be sanctified practically in your life, day to day, begins with knowing and believing that in Christ you have already 
been sanctified. Let me say that again. Let me try to say it maybe a little in a little different way here. Sanctification means to be holy, to be set apart. And after you get justified, after you get saved, the next question then is, what then shall I, shall I do? How do I live as a Christian? How do I live in such a way that's pleasing to the Lord? We call that sanctification, right? And it's a process that takes place over the course of your life. Hopefully, the day that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't look like 10, 15 years from now when you've been walking with the Lord. Hopefully, the Lord has been sanctifying you along the way and changing you and conforming you into the image of His Son. Right? That's God's will for you to be sanctified. And we often describe sanctification as that process, but the one thing we often neglect is the fact that in, in some senses, we have already been sanctified in Christ, right? When Paul writes a letter to some, to some of the churches, he often addresses it to the saints who are in Rome or to the saints who are in Corinth or to the saints who are in Philippi. And by that, he doesn't mean some super elite class of Christians who have progressed in their sanctification to such a point that they're now called saints. No, he calls them saints because to, to be a saint is to be sanctified. It's to be set apart unto God. And in Christ, we have already been sanctified. We are saints in him. And so that's something that's already true about us. But there is a part of, of sanctification that is also not yet true. God is also working out that sanctification in our life through the, the tests and the trials of our life, he is working uh, to conform us into the image of his son. And what I, wanna, what I want you to, to understand this morning, what I want you to apply to your own life is that you must start, in, in this process of sanctification, you must start by knowing and believing that the power of sin is already broken in Christ. You must know that. You must believe it. And so do you believe this? Do you believe that the stranglehold of your anxiety has lost its power? Do you believe that the strength of lust in your life has been defeated? Do you know that Christ has overcome your greed and your discontentment? Do you know that the power of lies has been undone in your life? Do you know this? Do you believe it? Paul does, in fact, eventually transition to the imperative commands, and he does begin to command us to be holy. That's what we're going to get into next week, beginning in verse 11. Paul switches to the imperative. He begins making commands. But he, he doesn't do it first. First, before he ever tells us to do something, he tells us to believe something, to consider something. Look at verse 11. This is where Paul turns the corner and begins to make commands. And so verse 11 is the, the first command, and this is what he commands us. He says, so also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's commanding us to consider something. 
He's commanding us to believe something here. I don't know if you recognize this word consider, but it's the, it's the word, the same word that we highlighted back in Romans chapter four. It's the Greek word logizomai, which I, I explained to you back then is an accounting term. It's an accounting term that means counted or credited or imputed or reckoned. And, and scholars say that this word means that something is counted to a person that is not inherent to them, right? So when w- we were talking about this in relationship to being justified because Paul was insisting that, we, um, that righteousness is not uh, something that we earn, but it's something that is counted or considered or reckoned or imputed to our account by faith. Well, similarly, Paul here says that although sin and its power is still present through indwelling sin, through unity with Christ, we are to consider or to reckon or to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's the, that's the very first commandment out of his mouth. Sanctification begins with believing your position of power over sin is through unity with Christ. And if you rush right into the imperative commands to be holy without stopping to consider your position in him, then you will invariably begin uh, to be trying to overpower sin in your life in your own strength. Have you ever run into a, a former boss after you no longer work with the company anymore? Or perhaps if you're a student ever run into a, a professor or a, a former teacher at, at Walmart and you just bump into him. You know, and, and I don't know about you, but for a moment, the minute you see that old boss or that old teacher, something in you kind of snaps to attention and, you know, they used to have authority over you and you sort of fall back into that old relationship almost immediately, right, of them being someone who has some kind of power over you. But then all of a sudden, as, as you're interacting with that old boss or that old teacher, it dawns on you, hey, this professor no longer has any authority over me. I've graduated, right? Or my former boss can't tell me what to do anymore. I have a new boss. I think this is kind of like what, what Paul is getting at here in, in Romans chapter 6, that we need to begin with recognizing the fact that sin is no longer our boss. It no longer has authority over us. Jerry Bridges gives a wonderful illustration in his book, The Discipline of Grace. He writes, During the the long years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, a Russian Air Force pilot flew his fighter plane from a base in Russia to an American Air Force base in Japan and asked for asylum. He was flown to the United States where he was duly debriefed given a new identity, and set up as a bona fide resident of the United States. In due time, he became an American citizen. The Russian pilot's experience illustrates to some degree, Jerry Bridges says, that what happens, it it illustrates to some degree what happened to us when we died to sin and were made alive to God. He changed kingdoms. He was given a new identity and a new status. 
He was no longer a Russian. He was now an American. He was no longer under the rule of, of what was then an oppressive and totalitarian government. Now he was free to experience all of the advantages and resources of living in a free and prosperous country. The former Russian pilot, however, was still the same person. He had the same personality, the same habits, the same cultural patterns as he did before he flew out of Russia. But he did have a new identity and a new status. And as a result of his new identity and status as a citizen in a free country, he now had the opportunity to grow as a free person to discard the mindset of someone living under bondage and to put off the habit patterns of a person living under the heel of a despotic regime. Furthermore, as a benefactor of our government's intelligence establishment, he was furnished all the resources needed to make a successful transition to an American citizen. In effect, this Russian pilot died to his old identity as a Russian citizen and was made alive in a new identity as an American citizen. As an American, all the resources of our government were at his disposal to become, in fact, what he had become in status. But this could, could not have happened without first changing his status. My friends, sin is indeed a power, but Christ overcame that power, and in him you too have already overcome that power. Know these things, believe them, and as Romans 6.11 says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus no matter what you feel. Consider it and believe it. John Murray said it well, and I close with this. He said, to say to the slave who, was not, who had not been emancipated, do not behave as a slave. So to do that is to, to mock his enslavement. But to say the same to the slave who has been set free is the necessary appeal to put into effect the privileges and rights of his liberation. 